Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden, and my guest today is author Dave Manelli, who talks about his short story book collection, How to Be Lonely, and how the stories test the limits of the human condition and whether life is worth living. When you write and express, you're saying, look at this story. You might not have the exact same story, but you're not alone. Listeners should know that the subject of suicide is discussed in today's show. If you or someone you know needs help, please contact the 988 Suicide and Crisis Lifeline by call or text to 988 or online at 988lifeline.org. Dave Minnelli teaches creative writing at Wayne State College and, starting in the fall, at the University of Nebraska at Omaha. His short story collection, How to Be Lonely, was published by WSC Press in March of 2021. Menelli draws from his diverse experiences in life to muse on our loneliness with a dark humour and a melancholy recipe. The stories test the limits of the human condition and Albert Camus' so-called serious problem on whether life is worth living. His writing often delves into the American lower middle class and those living just below the veil of the American dream. Manelli is married with two adult children and one granddaughter. Dave Manelli, welcome to Lives. I am so thrilled to be here. I'm really excited to talk about the book and about you, and I'm, I'm wondering if we might start then with some choices made about the book's physical presentation. So it's a collection of short stories, and the title is How to Be Lonely. And I'm wondering if the book was always going to be called How to Be Lonely, or if you had other titles in mind, not least because there is no story in the collection that is titled How to Be Lonely. So I'm just wondering, what was the choice behind the title? Mm. So I'm really glad you asked this question because no one has yet. Most short story collections usually do take one of the titles from one of the short stories, and that's the commonplace. But for some reason, as I had put this collection together with um, newer stories, with some of my older stories, the theme hit me almost immediately. I had run it by a couple of my mentors, specifically Tom Payne, who was a really um, fantastic short story writer, and the New Yorker, and uh, been used by several people to teach, including myself. Um, and I just, he just, he asked me, "Do you have a title yet?" And I just said, "I'm thinking how to be lonely." And it just stopped him in his tracks. And he said, "That's is that your title?" And I said, "I'm thinking." He's like, "That's that's fantastic." And I said, "Well, I got, I don't know if anyone's used it, and I don't want to, you know, it sounds like a title that's been out there." I said the other one is um, The Serious Question, which, as you had pointed out in the intro, was uh, Albert Camus' problem or question about whether life is worth living. And one of my short stories titles, and he said, no, no, no. It's how to be lonely. Loneliness can mean so many different things, right? There's the loneliness where you go off and you, you can become a hermit or you can go in your closet or under your bed, but you can always come back from it. 
And that's not the loneliness I was, of course, talking about. I was talking about the one that's like a cancer in your bones. And, and it didn't matter if you were at a family gathering around f- with 40 people around. What matters is, is that there are things you can't share with those 40 people. There is something, having read the book, about the title which is ambiguous. There is this sense that, yes, this may in some instances be seen as a guide a how-to mm, on mm, how to mm-hmm. be lonely. Um, but also, it's an accusation that if you behave like this, then you will be lonely. Yes. That is absolutely correct on the second part, especially and where I started. I had more stories available for the book, and I cut them because they didn't fit what you just said. Um, they just weren't. Um, I wasn't accusing them of being lonely. I guess, as, as you said, um, I wasn't thinking like that, but that's exactly right. At one level of reading, the book is just purely entertaining and darkly funny. Thank you. At, at a deeper level, I, I think there are some serious philosophical themes that, that are being explored within it. And so forgive me for quoting Nietzsche, who exhorted us to say yes to life. And in many ways, I feel like the whole book is a response to saying yes to life. So there are 14 stories within the book. And I would imagine that even though initially I just read them in the order they were presented, I would imagine you put a lot of thought into the order. And so, for example, the, the first story is a five-letter word for transcendental manifestation. And it's sort of a almost absurd, fanciful story about a woman encountering sexual intimacy with a ghost. And the last story is the one you mentioned earlier, which is a serious question, which is about someone's painful consideration about whether or not they should end their own life. And so the book takes this journey, but there does seem to be an arc in response to this idea of saying yes to life. What were some of the thoughts you were having about how to structure 14 tales? Exactly. So there was no question that the serious question would be the last story. You know, I don't want to give too many spoilers away, but your yes to life has basically kind of ended that story almost. And uh, I wanted him to answer the question for all the stories in a way. My brothers and I have dark humor. We've, we, we get on it. I have two brothers, no sisters. <laughs> My mom and dad have dark humor. We, we grow up with this humor and even in the ser- most serious of times, I mean, that is w- what we have to get through life, and we use it. So I take on serious issues with it. One thing that um, Chad at the press was so great about was he didn't have the answers, so to speak, of what stories went where. He had the right questions. He knew what to ask me. And it's like a puzzle, a great deal of thinking and thought that goes into it. And you're right. Um, you don't want certain stories to be together. Um, you don't want to take some slide early on all the way down and then all of a sudden have some ghost story sex. We started with that story because we thought it had a little bit of everything. Um, and we thought we'd display a little bit of everything right away. And it was kind of up here. It wasn't too deep with life and death, but it did show a guy who felt, again, lonely. 
So, so to give listeners then a, a sense of this yeah. particular story, it recounts how a couple that are engaged to be married, the woman announces that she's had a sexual encounter with a ghost and her partner struggles to believe that's happened, um, to accept it and understand it, but also at the same time feels as if he's been cheated on. But, but this is with a, right. a spectral, you know, invisible Tommy. apparition. That breaches their trust, as their, right. uh, their ability to relate, especially as the world around them seems to be accepting at face value that what seems to be entirely absurd is, in fact, a rational response to something that is right. inexplicable. Right, right. And um, it does ruin their relationship, and uh, ultimately he's unable to deal with it. Yeah, um, And, you know... <laughs> That was fun to write. That was a fun story to write. I'm not, because I took, I made it, I mean, it's just a realistic story with an absurd piece, but um, you hear about things like this all the time, and, you know, whether that person did or didn't, like I said, isn't important really, I guess. It's whether that person, uh, her her husband-to-be believes her or wants to believe her or will support her. But then again, that, like you said, my question was, well, if he believes her, then it, is it cheating? Now he's got a whole other question. <laughs> so that was that story. But then back to your original question about the order. So it was important to not be a total roller coaster ride either, that they just didn't take you down to the ground and just destroy you and then go up and have the, you know, and I, I had just a couple that were like that. Um, I think the sinkhole story was somewhat like that. Um, but it, again, went back into his own dealing with himself, his relationships with his mother and so forth. That was a, but that was a humorous story. But the others were, you know, dealing on the insides, you know. One of the stories I go back to right away for some reason, and not that it's my favorite story, is How to Be a Man. A middle class, lower middle class guy, used to be a military guy. He just comes home from work, and um, there's a child, a son, and his wife. It's basically just him coming home and being unsatisfied with his life. And there's a pretty good backstory to that. Why? His neighbors used to be friends, have moved into a bigger house. Um, she's on the phone t- cooking, talking to him, uh, that, that girl. Um, he's watching a show about removing tattoos or, or uh, fixing a tattoo. and I mean, that, to me, that story anyway, is the most realistic and epitome of how to be lonely um, in our world today. Being at home, living a normal life, and being lonely, it doesn't mean, I suppose, that he doesn't love his wife or his son, even though he was a real jerk to him. But it, if we're not careful, it can it can have us do and act or think wrong uh, in the wrong way. The painful part of that story is the extent to which the father belittles his young son. Mm-hmm. Right. It's his fear to actually be a, a, a real human, to actually be vulnerable, to love. And his response to that fear, uh, that alienation in some way, is, is to dig deeper, is to keep withdrawing. And so, and so he belittles those around him and, and, and acts out all the worst stereotypes. I just, I mean, how many times are we hearing it now? It's just awful. You know, one of the things I tried to do 
in every story was have a glimmer of hope. Even in one story where it's possible someone didn't make it, <laughs> there was a glimmer of hope with the phone call. So I always wanted a glimmer of hope for love or a chance to not be lonely. That was because I think there is partly our own fault. We're often not grateful for what we have, right, and what's around us. And so we, we feel lonely. We feel like we don't have the people to listen to us. And that's partially true sometimes. We don't have the right people around us to hear the right things. But sometimes we, we don't know because we haven't tried. I want to explore one or two other themes using the story sinkholes. And would you mind just setting up the, the sort of the backbone of that story before we talk about it? I read it, um, this article about lots of sinkholes appearing in strange places. You know, real world strange stories that kind of get me going. <laughs> and I used that as, a, uh, as my backdrop for this story. And I thought I would write about a guy who, um, you know, when I start, I never know. <laughs> um, but it, it sounded entertaining to me to start. So I started with a guy who maybe had just gone through some things or started some things, and he had a hole by his mailbox, basically. And it kept growing. He didn't know what it was. Well, the neighbors all took their turns at deciding what it was, and conspiracy theories abound, and um, that was fun to write. But what goes on is his insecurities about the sinkhole and the insecurities about himself. And he tries to overcome it with his girlfriend. He tries to get her back at the end. But he has insecurities about his mother and his life, what he does. He's a traitor, futures traitor. You can tell he doesn't have friends that are always around or he can talk to. And so his loneliness is a little different. He's not um, a miserable, depressed person. He's not like somebody drinking every night and, you know, He's not like the father in that story, uh, How to Be a Man. This is a different kind of person. He gets up, he, he works from home, he's smart, he's clever, he, he makes a good living, but he, he's insecure about other things. Um, I had his neighbors basically bring that out in him. I mean, I hope I'm not giving too much away, but um, basically at the end, he essentially succumbs to... I don't want to use the word conspiracy theory, but he essentially, at the very end, he succumbs to using faith as the means to reconcile mm -hmm. the situation. And what I found, what I found really powerful about this story is, I mean, it's super entertaining. Just so that it's just a great Thank read. Thank you. And yet, the sinkhole itself is just this metaphor for everything in the world that we don't understand that feels threatening. And I'm thinking again of. COVID, and, but, but whatever it is in our life that's creating anxiety for us, instead of him looking inward and addressing his insecurities, he instead reaches out to deal with this irrationality, this inability to face up to this monster, which is the sinkhole. He reaches for a, a faith-based solution to that. And this isn't to criticize faith as such, but it's, it's a way for him to avoid actually looking at himself. It was a fun story. I felt it came together pretty well, and uh, the comedy was higher in that one. You know, like I, I loved the neighbors, the German neighbor, the the woman who was half dressed. You know, everything just felt fun. And but yet, like you said, he could not get past it. 
I like the human experience. That's why I don't write science fiction and I don't write the adventures. I did, I, I love the human experience. I think there's so much to just two people in a room and maybe that's why people think I'm nuts, but I, I, I just really think there can be a lot to be told there. But yeah, the end, um, the priest doing the prayer, I went and looked up the, you know, I did, I, I'm 12 years Catholic school. <laughs> I, I went and looked up the uh, prayer for the, it's, it's not an exorcism because that's people, but when they go and they, they feel like there's demons in a house or they have to bless something, that's the prayer they use. So I, that is the exact prayer. And the priest could not be bothered. Remember when he was yelling at it? Oh God, it was, <laughs> this is funny stuff, man. Anyway. Serious subjects addressed with, as you say, dark humor and this melancholy recipe. And it's, it's a pretty heady brew. And, you know, I, if it's not clear, I thoroughly enjoyed it. I do want to talk about the last story, a serious question. But I think before we get to that one, because it is a serious question, uh, one of my favorite characters in the book is Terry Pensk. Mm. And the story is called The Life of Terry Pensk. I want you to explore that a little bit again about what it says about our current attitudes to yeah. life and yeah. you know how, how we approach life and, and also how we judge other people's approach to living their lives. Yeah. Before we get to those questions, again, would you set that story up a little? Terry Pence is a, uh, he is a, a lower class guy who uh, quit on school kind of guy, but he doing the best he can. He's kind of a smart ass and he's not, Lovable, but he's likable. It was important to try to find balance there, I guess. And he finds out that he's going to get some inheritance from an aunt that he had accidentally helped from a molestation um, many, many years earlier. And when he gets this money, which is only about $150,000, he thinks he's rich. And he thinks he's rich because he, well, he doesn't care too much about learning. You know, what he cares about is um, living. (laughs) And I feel like that's becoming more and more the American attitude, um, anti-intellectualism. And I wanted to write about it. I don't hate Terry, but I hate what Terry, the people like Terry become. So, uh, Terry thinks he's filthy rich and he's going to set off and first of all he you know dismisses every friend and girlfriend that he's had and neighbor and sets off on his little journey buys himself a car and all those things but meanwhile footnotes begin and the footnotes it turns out we find out by the end is by an accountant that terry has hired at the end to find out what happened to all his money so we do get an actual, Terry will say something like, you know, bought a doghouse or bought a Camaro or bought a plane ticket. And you, you, but in the foot, and they're all footnoted and you'll find out exact costs. Even when he goes to a whorehouse in Reno, we'll find out the exact price of, of things and stuff. So we follow his journey and um, all the way to jail. What I like about Terry is that as objectionable as he seems at first glance, what he does with this money, I think, is what Western consumer culture basically asks us to do, which is to spend as much as possible in tension with the demand that we act 
responsibly and with a degree of uh, future thinking and austerity and not to be vulgar and crass. So he's existing at this tension point. And I don't know how many of us don't think about coming into some money and spending it on stuff we want to do. And I wonder if, in some ways for you, Terry is a way to express these sort of tension points in society. I don't like Las Vegas. And I know I'm in the minority in America, but to me it's the most contrived fun. I don't understand. Like, why do you want to go to contrived fun? And that's what this is all kind of feels like to me, the story. Like, you're supposed to do these things. We almost have a recipe book now for when you have money, right? It's about what we have or how we look and not what we know anymore. It's like just backwards, you know? And Terry is just, I feel, I just wanted to write the epitome of this problem. There's nothing wrong. Well, no, there's a lot wrong with Terry. But on the surface, there's nothing wrong with Terry. He, he, you can have, if you meet him and he likes you, <laughs> you can be a great guy. We can all, you, you don't have to read to be a good person. You don't have to be intelligent to be a good person. That's not my point. My point is, though, is that people don't even try to learn anymore. And I feel like that's one of the points of life is learning, you know, giving, loving, learning. For me, the tragedy for Terry was not so much that he made a choice that the money was for living and, and he chose to live. He, he said he wanted to say yes to life and he did because he had the chance right. to do that. What I find tragic, though, is that he found himself in jail with actually no understanding that that's what was happening. He was unintentional about yes, living life. Exactly. So it's not so much he was saying yes to life as much as it just happened to him. Yeah, and he didn't he, – because he thought that's the way it was supposed to be, right? I mean, and he, and he ended up alone, no friends, because he – you know, the ones that really were his friends before, well, <clears throat> they thought, you know, he – He'd burn those bridges, and the ones that he thought he made when he had the money weren't really friends. He had purchased their companionship. So I do want to talk about you a little bit, and perhaps a good way to move our conversation in that direction is just to talk a little bit about the last story in the book, which is the one that explicitly references Albert Camus' philosophy and his writing about what is the meaning of life and how should we live? Uh, is life worth living? The title of the last story is A Serious Question, and I wonder if you wouldn't mind just giving us a little bit about, um, about that story. Um, I had an illness in 2012. And uh, I was sure I was going to die. I um, thought I had leukemia or lymphoma or Hodgkin's. Um, was was diagnosed with it, but they couldn't find it. Worked with Mayo, UNMC, doctor, cancer doctors at UNMC told me I was had to be lymphoma. It'll, it'll appear. So I basically had lymphoma without having lymphoma, you know, the symptoms, and I was very sick. I was in bed 
20 hours a day or hospital or doctors on an IV just keeping me from screaming. Um, after about 12 or 13 months of not finding out what was wrong, they decided to try to treat me instead and said that, you know, this is a good thing that nothing's appeared by this point. You're not going to be cancerous. So I had mixed emotions back then. You, you find yourself disappointed. Leukemia is not showing up, which is wrong. But when you're that sick, you, you just want to know what it is. And I'd obviously gone through serious depression. I mean, when you wake up every morning and you, you you squint because you don't know what the pain is going to be like in your head or your body and all that. Um, it's hard. And then my kids had just started high school, and they just missed everything. Um, and they they would come home, and they'd lay in bed with me and tell me about things. And i try to get up for dinner every night, and uh, they'd tell me about stuff, and now i go back to bed, basically. It was a, it was a really tough couple of years. Um. It was basically just gone. I mean, those go, those two years were just wiped <laughs> from my life. Um, by the end of 2013, though, they, we had had some success in treating it, and uh, I'd find myself um, becoming more and more functional, although days were um, – we didn't know – I didn't know if it would be a good or bad day or if I would have a five-day bad run or what, what have you. You know, I still take uh, seven pills every morning to this day. And I'm on a very strict diet that they found foods and drinks trigger my illness. And so those together have made me very, very functional. I still have some cycles and bad days. Um, mornings can be tough. But I, I have a new life. It's, it's I can't do the things I used to do, overact. If I if if I get too active, I'm uh, I get pretty sick or tired or whatever. I have to live a different life than I was leading. This was all about when I was forty. Now I'm fifty one, and uh, but I'm functional and I'm. So anyway, what happened is I, while I was sick in about 2013, a good friend of mine, uh, Benjamin Graber, told me I needed to go back and get my master's in writing, and I said, but I'm. I can't. I'm just sick. And he's like, you're going to go to the low residency program, University of Nebraska, Omaha. You can be sick while you're there because it's at the lead lodge. And so it's twice a year, 10 days, you're down there. And so the first residency, I was pretty sick. I didn't, I went to some, lec I, yeah, I got to go to so many lectures and then you go to workshops. And so I did those and I was in my room a lot, but by the second residency, I had started to be treated and getting better. And I got my master's and, um, trying to figure out my life at, at the same time which was also super hard I mean I'd been my wife and I had owned restaurants in Omaha and um, I had worked for as a business consultant and I, I couldn't do those things really at the time because I, I just didn't have steady hours in me I had hours in me I didn't have steady hours in me so I got a call to teach start teaching college and I was like okay <laughs> And so I've been doing that, and I love it, teaching fiction. Anyway, during that whole process, a lot happened with friends. I mean, they want to help, but you just want to slap them in the face. And it's not anyone's fault. They're just trying to help. They love you. On the other hand, you'll see people you don't see a lot. 
I got this all the time. Oh, Dave, you look great. You must be feeling great. Meanwhile, inside I'm burning up or I have a terrible headache or I just want to die. You know, they, they don't believe you're sick. You know, it's like, and I've had people actually say to me, you sure it's not psychological? And I'll be like, yeah, a lot of it is probably, but no, it's not, you know. I mean, I have doctors helping me, telling me it's not. They know it's not. It's, what it, you know. Just, so, this short story, I have a couple. I have the migraine story, Migraine City, which just kind of goes through one migraine. <laughs> it's the best I could do. And then this story, you know, the end was kind of just a, um, I had a dear friend who wanted me to go to see a psychic. And um, I didn't. I didn't go see a psychic. Because, you know, they couldn't diagnose me. This was early on. And so uh, I took the story to where I did go see a psychic. But I also, um, you know, good fiction jumps the truth and takes off somewhere else. You know, the other part is, is did I think about death? I did. I didn't think about it specifically, though, as in, you know. But I did I did think about, man, my family would be better off without me. I'm just a burden. Um, here, I, you know, my wife has to come home and then take me to the hospital or take me to the doctor and then pick me up cause I, so I'd be on an IV minerals all day and get myself together or whatever. Or the medical costs, you know. I mean, we... <laughs> We went through everything because, you know, I left my job and then we start paying for insurance and then all that. So those thoughts were depressing and I, and I started having the thoughts of how everything, everybody would be a lot happier if I was, wasn't around. So writing wise, I started getting creative with it, thinking what are the different ways and um, that turned into this story along with the psychic, which I had a really good time with writing. And um, he's basically in the process of deciding how he would, uh, the serious question, which is whether he should live or die for his family's sake. But he's going to entertain his wife and his, her friend and go see the psychic. But also because he has, maybe, maybe she will find out for him, you know. But the psychic isn't who he thinks. He, you know, he thinks he's going to go find some kind of witch-looking smoke room thing, and she's galling a reindeer sweater in the middle of summer or something like that. And you know, he finds things like weird pictures on the wall and the cat litter box, you know, and a receipt from Walmart next to a receipt from the online psychic <laughs> store. So they have an interesting meeting. After he leaves, things happen that make him feel like he gets his answer. He wants her to tell him whether to kill himself, basically. So the character in the story is looking externally for a sign or even a direct statement about what he should do instead of wrestling with it for himself. Mm. You've talked about your own painful experience in terms of the genesis of that story in your own real lived experience. And so I'm wondering for you, to what extent 
is this book, this collection of stories, a catharsis for you, a way for you to look inwards, to come to terms with what sounds like your own wrestling with choices about life and death? What is the meaning of being alive? So how, how much was this book its own form for you of wrestling with that for yourself? A lot of it. A lot of it. But I feel like, um, again, I never felt, I, I don't know. I, mean, I, I don't know how much in danger I was of getting as close as some of these figures were. So you mentioned earlier that seeds in the stories are drawn from some of your own lived experience mm-hmm. or elements in the real world that have inspired you. You talk about sort of bridging the truth. And, and you're a fiction writer. That, uh-huh. That's what you're doing here. But you're bridging from the truth to perhaps some more interesting fictional story or, or some message that, that can be communicated this way. I'm sure that holds true then with the characters as well, not just, not just the arc of a story, but also the characters. And I'm, I'm wondering if any of the characters made choices that are different to the ones that you made or would make. Mm-hmm. And also perhaps if the characters told you what had to be the choice as opposed to you telling them. That's exactly it. I, 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 one of the great lessons I had to give myself was the first novel I was working on that's still not published but I still work on was based on myself at, and very much um, so, which often I think is normal. Um. And I was holding too much, too close to the vest and the truth. I was really holding the story back. And when I finally made the choice, the, or I should say, when the character finally made the choice that Dave would not, it just, I, I, I stopped and I, look, I was like, oh, finally, it's not me. Like, it just absolutely occurred to me that this is what had been happening. I, I didn't knowingly realized that I was riding too close to the bus. I didn't knowingly realize that I was riding totally me. But as soon as I made this conscious decision to not do what I would do and act in a way I wouldn't act, all of that came into my conscious. And I, and I was, I went back and started rewriting a lot of it. And I, I knew, I, I suddenly knew who the, the main was. I, I now knew who he was. I, it, it all became much clearer. The character became clearer. And ever since then, I have had much less problem. We pull from our own experiences and our own beliefs, but it is easier for me now to go contrary to those beliefs. Um, and I think I did that pretty well in a lot of these stories. I, I mean, I, d- I don't agree with many of the things that happen in these stories. And being a songwriter as well, um, you have to be empathetic to write songs. You, you don't live all those things you write. I don't live these things I write in these stories, but I think um, we have to have observant eyes to be able to, otherwise, I mean, you know, what are we going to write about? <laughs> I mean, you can't write your whole life story, otherwise just go write your memoir or autobiography. I've heard you say that fiction writers see the world differently than other people. So I'm wondering, what does that mean generally as a mm-hmm. statement, but also what does that mean for you? 
because you and I exist in the same world, but you're seeing something different than me. And so I'm wondering what that means for you. Well, it means that I might laugh at a funeral <laughs> where you won't. Uh, yeah. If, if grandma rolls out of the casket because the table broke, I mean, that's French kiss Mwah! for a writer, right? Um, you got to be kidding me. Um, every writer's pulling out their notebook while everybody else is screaming. And um, so we see it differently, not that we don't see the same thing. Um, we just see it differently. I think, you know, and, and I think the other side too, where <laughs> I think it was cl sound cliche, but man, sometimes I just get tired of seeing the tragedy, you know? I mean, I can watch very short um, meeting of two people and I'll see it. I will see what just happened and think, oh, what just happened there, right? I can see it in their face and I can see something just happened. I can see the way their hands are, the way she's now holding herself or he is, the way they just separated. And that might've been the last time they ever talked to each other. And I think a lot of people won't see that. So it's not just laughing at um, grandma's casket rolling over. It's also seeing the other side of it where, um, you know, or the person laughing for an extra long time. And it's like, uh, she's not laughing. She's covering something up there, you know? Um, yeah. So that's what I mean. I, I guess, you know, um, when we're working with character, I, I teach my class when we talk about character. I will learn more. I don't want to know what they look like unless it's really important to the story. You know, I guess it's important to know if they're a hippie looking person um, or military style looking person. But I still don't know what they are, who they are. You know, I always try to give the example of going to New York City, Manhattan. I mean, point out the millionaires to me, <laughs> right? I mean, Manhattan's the great equalizer um, to humanity. A guy could look like he's been living under the boardwalk in Long Island, and he could be a millionaire. And he might be both, as for that matter. So telling me what, what they look like won't tell me a lot about them. But if you go into their bedroom or their office and tell me what books are on the shelf or how messy or clean the room is or what albums are on the shelf, right, or you tell me what's around them and what they collect or have or own or, you know, how they treat things around them, now I'm learning about them. And uh, so when we observe things, we don't just observe um, we observe the big guy getting into the little sports car and right. Or the little guy getting into the big truck or, you know, um, those things we observe cause we learn about their character. So you write, I'm, I'm sure probably because it's, it's a passion for you. It's also a career. There's a business part of this too. <laughs> um, I'm sure there's a degree of vanity. There's all, all these aspects to it, but there's also real substance and real meaning and a real expression about the human condition. And in that vein, I'm wondering, you've been writing for many years now, how are you a different person because of what you've written? Whoa, what a great question. 
Yeah. There's no question that writing has made me a different person because of what we probably just talked about. I don't think I'd see the world the same without it. I think writing, and especially literature, and I, you know, and we write, you know, even in writing an essay where we're writing our thoughts, which I do a lot, we become philosophical. And when you become philosophical, you don't know the answers, but you, you sure are asking a lot of questions about the world. And when you start asking a lot of questions about the world, you're opening your mind to wanting to learn more about the world. And one thing that writing has made me do is read incessantly. I mean, um, and learn more. I'm reading Filthy Animals right now, um, short story collection. Um, just started it. I'm, I'm reading hundreds of short stories right now for my classes to get my syllabus together, <laughs> syllabi. And uh, it's fantastic. And it's another one of these human experience, um, African-American black uh, life, human stories. And I, I'm just really already enthralled by it. I'll have it done in a couple of days probably. And those types of books that I read inspire me. You know, a lot of times you read something and you're like, oh. or you, you know, you hear music and you're like, ah, I'm never going to do this again, <laughs> you know, but it actually inspires me to want to just keep writing and, and, and contributing my own voice to the conversation um, if people like you are enjoying it and getting what you're saying from my stories, I mean, uh, there's nothing more I can ask. Well, let, let me ask you then from a reader's perspective, and I asked you about how you've been changed by your writing, the, the act of writing, the content of what you're exploring in your writing. You're one person. There are thousands of people that are consuming your words, and, and I'm one of them as a reader and I'm wondering how you hope readers may be impacted mm. by what you write. And I accept again that just to be entertained, to think that this was money well spent on, mm. on a product and, and that someone's life was enjoyable for that time that they were reading your book. And I would guarantee that that is a feeling that I had, uh, an experience I had from reading your book. So I'm going to take that as a given. Is there more that you hope the yeah. reader might experience or encounter through reading your work? Yeah. So I think that for me, there is the entertainment aspect. And I think that's where the dark humor actually does come in probably because I don't want it to be. And I do write very honest, hurtful, <laughs> painful things. But the, the biggest part of much of what I write, and I think much of what many writers probably find themselves writing is when you write and express, you're saying, look at this story. You might not have the exact same story, but you're not alone in your story. You might have a really messed up situation or even life, and it might not be the exact same thing, but you can see the parallels, and it's okay. It's okay to be you, 
and to have what's going on and to be struggling or um, to have fallen, um, failed, to have gone through any of these things, um, to have not been able to get past a death or get past something so that you've, you know, flailed, um, to not lived up to expectations. Because we've all not lived up to other people's expectations. And, you know, whether we should care about that or not depends on you. I think that's a big part of why we write and want readers to read and accept is so that we know that we're not alone. Because if you're accepting my writing, then we know, okay, good, I'm not alone too because you like the reading. So it's a kind of a partnership in a way, just like music, right? Um, when you're playing a song and a, someone sings your song back to you in a, and you're like, oh, okay, there's the connection. They feel it too. And like I said, it's the same thing. They might not have that exact experience, but you make your unique experience has connected to their unique experience. If I just say the sky is blue and I'm walking down the street and tripped, they don't connect to that. They've probably tripped under a blue sky a hundred times, but they still don't connect to that. What they want to connect to is something they, they, they haven't heard and or they say, Oh my gosh, that guy went through that. I went through this. Thank you, you know, and, and, he, and I got to laugh a little bit on the way too, or I cried, or I cried, or, you know, depending on maybe the writer or the, what you read or, or watched on TV or whatever it was. And that's the connection and for me. And I feel like a lot of people, whether they do it or not, I feel like that's, you know, you're not alone. Um, one of the most beautiful essays I've ever read was um, a guy wrote about losing their baby right away when it was born and it's called hello goodbye and it was in the sun magazine and i use it in my class for um cnf or or uh, creative nonfiction or for um composition classes but to show how powerful just the essay personal essay can be and he writes about what he went through and he writes it in second person you will find yourself hearing all the noises, including the air conditioner and this, and you're waiting for your, and you will find yourself. And he writes the whole thing in second person. And at the end, he says, um, your wife and it's five in the morning now. And your wife and I are in the cab. You bring the clothes. The baby was supposed to be wearing home. Um, you stare out the window at the one last star remaining before the sun comes up and you wonder, blah, blah, blah. And I, I show the class how powerful that is because He's saying you because he's saying you aren't alone. You feel alone because there was just the two of them at three, three, four, and five in the morning. And it's like all these babies are being born and we're the ones that this happens to. But he's writing this essay. Why did he write this essay? Because, of course, it's therapeutic. And, of course, you want to just, you got to get it out. But on the other hand, he wants people to know because maybe he didn't. And so now he wants them to know you're not alone. Is your experience going to be exactly the same? No. But you're going to know you're not alone. And that is the most powerful message I think a writer can, can give, even if it's entertaining fiction, in a way. And even if it's sci-fi, sometimes people get that. And why are sci-fi 
readers so passionate towards that? Well, it's realistic um, relationships and occurrences in a sci-fi setting, right? So it's the same type of thing. Things happen, but just in a fantasy-type setting, and they, and they still relate to it. It's that human connection. We recognize the humanity in others, and we, we just need an invitation into that. Oh, yeah. Well said. I know you wanted to read from this collection. Would, would you mind doing that now and perhaps giving us the introduction and the backstory for this? This is a section from The Serious Question, the last story of the book from How to Be Lonely. Falling on your sword is dramatic, but how long would I be alive after thrusting it through? He didn't want to be writhing on the floor in extreme agony for an hour. Plus, one does have to find an actual sword, and that can't be easy. It must be extremely sharp, and it would be nice if it was clean for hygiene's sake. And truth be told, there is absolutely no way he has the courage or is crazy enough to stab himself in the heart with a knife or sword. Drew turns to see how many people are waiting behind him in line. They look at him with impatient looks. He motions to them in solidarity. They don't know he is sick. They can't tell his neck and head are buzzing and brewing another broiler in the back of his skull. Even the tests say he is healthy. When his friends come to see him, they always tell him how good he looks. He knows it's code for not being completely sure he is sick. He knows what they think. It must be mental. Drew gives Jamie credit for one thing. She isn't like his other friends who constantly send their poorly researched articles and rare diseases they come across. He knows they mean well, but it only depresses him more than it, than it helps. Lyme, lupus, Mediterranean glandular fever, metal poisoning, tooth rotting, arsenic. Oh, and F you and your Munchausen syndrome, Gary, you asshole. Don't think I don't look these up. I'm not pretending. They send him diets and miracle medicines, and they placidly shake their heads when he answers that he has not yet tried the horsehair and pig testicle smoothie diet or that he hasn't swung over to Bad Sackage in Germany to get that treatment they read about in People magazine. I'm telling you, they say to him, it has really helped this person I know. This gal I work with, Mary Beth, is running marathons now. She could barely walk a year before, and now, fucking marathons. God damn it, Mary Beth. Why couldn't you have just died? Drowning is totally out of the question. Burning is also unacceptable. A car crash frightens him. Plus, others could get hurt. And there's no good cliffs in the Midwest to suddenly spill off of. Sitting in a car sucking carbon monoxide with the garage door closed would be painless, but would be hard to make look like an accident for the insurance company. There's something about the monoxide choice that seems less respectable to Drew, with no intended offense to those who have successfully or unsuccessfully used the method for that matter. But again... It is important for him to have some dignity in his departure. For instance, shitting himself and falling off the toilet with his briefs around his ankles like Elvis went has always been something of a phobia for him, even before he was sick. He went ahead and named this fear Elvis has left the building phobia. He would, rather much rather, he would much rather die hang gliding over the Grand Canyon like a superhero whose powers suddenly left him due to a solar flare. Too bad he has also been massively debilitated by a fear of heights. Drew made a list of his intentions for when he dies. He hid them in the top drawer of his desk in a manila envelope where they would be easy to find. 1. Cremate me. 2. Mix some of the ashes in two large fireworks. Must be two, to be lit at the same time. Light them exactly at 11.11 p.m. the night of my show. 
scene number three. Three, there is a CD in the envelope played at my show memorial. Songs to include, one, The End by The Doors. Two, Spirit in the Sky by Norman Greenbaum for the kids. Three, Staying Alive by The Bee Gees for laughs. Four, The Final Countdown by Europe, more laughs. Five, Come On Eileen, Guilty Pleasure Song. Six, Hey Joe by Johnny Halliday in French to piss off Bill Summers, who always hated this version. The idea behind having two fireworks comes from Drew's distress of one being a dud. It angers him every time he thinks about it, not exploding, and all those assholes from where he worked before had to resign, including Bill Summers flapping about it afterward at the bar or work the next day. Yep, just like his life. What a dud. Should I go on when he meets the psychic? I'll go on. So Drew ends up going to the psychic's house, and uh, we'll pick up from there. I'm here for Madam T. The woman smiles. That's me. My name is Teresa. She holds out her hand to shake. You must be Drew. Drew puckers, unconvinced. He notices her chewing on her gum in big bites. She wasn't chewing a few seconds before. Not what you expected, she says. I'm not sure what I... Thought I'd have the whole I Dream of Genie thing going on? Well, not exactly, but a veil, maybe. Some bells, maybe smoke. She laughs. Drew looks back at the exterior of the house, moving his head in a circle. What color would you say this is? The house? Seafoam green. Ah. She laughs. Come on in. Drew looks around one last time before following her inside. He enters the small home onto a rug that reads, Welcome, Alive, or Dead. And instead of finding himself surrounded by mystic smoke and flashy colors and medieval harp music, there are sticky notes with grocery lists and phone numbers and photographs hanging on the refrigerator. A litter box full of piss balls and cat shit and dirty dishes in the sink. He immediately notices the dry rack on top of the rubber mat like his mother had back in the 60s. The lack of a dishwasher astonishes him. The house is small like a trailer park. Small. Drew keeps his eyes wandering without appearing nosy. He assumes she lives alone except for the cat, unless it's her tiny fecal matter smattered with gray particles in the litter box, and she is trying to save money with the water company. She excuses herself and walks down a couple of steps just off the kitchen to an octagon-shaped cove with a wooden table and clears it off. As he waits, Drew glances down on the countertop next to him. There are two receipts. The first is from Sandy's online psychic craft store and lists purchases of Cypress essential oil, tarot of the new vision cards, hex-breaking oil, Guatemalan worry dolls, and 12 healing moonstones at 80 cents each. The other receipt is from Walmart and lists toilet paper, Kleenex, two pairs of Argyle socks, new and improved best cat litter, meow mix, checks with cheese, and a 12-pack of Diet Pepsi. There isn't a crystal ball to be found. There is a poster behind and above her from the movie Some Like It Hot, which feels like a strange artifact for a fortune teller's house. But she's broken most of Drew's preconceptions already, so what's one more? The cat comes out of the bedroom and sneaks into the kitchen for a brief moment, running under Drew's legs. Come on over, she says, waving her in. They take seats at the table, and Madam T immediately asks Drew to share a little about why he's here. He begins giving his story, one he has given at least a thousand times, and one that he is efficient at telling. The symptoms of pain in the lymph nodes, the fevers, the bladder problems, the migraines, etc., plus the incomplete tests. She nods while taking notes on the back of an envelope that she had pulled down off the refrigerator with the veterinarian office return address. Stephanie, my wife, she doesn't know I'm here. Are you worried what she will think? I have no idea. She smirks at his answer. He doesn't clarify. 
She reaches down into a bag and pulls up large cards. Ever had a tarot reading before, she asks. And I'll end there. My guest today has been author Dave Manelli. His most recent book is How to Be Lonely. Dave, thanks so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me, Stuart. Lives is hosted and produced by me, Stuart Chittenden, and brought to you by KIOS, Omaha Public Radio. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening.